Hey, dinks! Welcome to Dennis in the Know. This is your backstage pass for current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. I'm Dr. Jeff Horowitz. With me is Dr. Jennifer Bell. You know her as JB and Dr. Chad Duplantis. We are all practicing dentists, we are all educators, and we are all business owners. Our job is to bring all of you in the know. Chad, you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, so this this our guest tonight is somebody who has been a supporter, a proponent. He's been with us since the beginning. Uh, we've had him on several times, and we will have him on several times again unless he does something stupid tonight, which I'm not thinking that he will. But uh, no, Tom, more stupid than us. Hey, how cool is it that we can say Tom is a great friend of the show? Uh, Tom's got. 30 years of experience as a board-certified pharmacist, educator, and professional speaker, but he really focuses on on dentistry, and he knows dentistry inside and out. He knows the pharmacology associated with dentistry. Um, He's lectured over a thousand times all over the place. Uh, He works with the ADA. He serves as a consultant to the uh, ADA's Council on Scientific Affairs. Um, he's humorous, he's engaging, and we're just honored to call him our friend. So without further ado, please welcome Pharmacology Declassified's own Dr. Tom Viola. How's everybody doing? It's good to see Tom. Good to see you all. How's things? Okay. All well, I hope. It's great. It's great. And you know, I'll never forget, Tom, the very first time you were on the show, you had COVID. As a matter of fact, (laughs) And, and damn it. You didn't say a thing to us. You were feeling miserable, and you were like, I got to go. I got like 103 fever. I got to go. Crap, man. And the second time, we wondered how he knew so damn much about cannabis. Well, you know, there's research. In all the things I do. You know. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Anyway. One of the other times I spoke with you guys, I was at the Yankee Dental Conference, and yeah. uh, and it's it snowed like 20 inches. <laughs> so... Being home today and not having any fever, I'm thinking this is, you know, a very This warm. may be your best show. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> this is this is the best one yet. Hey, what is that behind you? Is that an old pharmacy cabinet? That is a, a series of file cabinets I had in my in a pharmacy I worked in for a long time ago. Uh, I also have all of uh, my state magnets on the uh, front. All the states I've actually visited and spoken in, and uh, I'm, 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 cool. I'm blessed to have spoken in all 50 states. So I've uh, that's cool. Got the whole collection, yeah, and it's and a couple of European countries like Germany and Switzerland. They they made the the wall too. So. Very very cool. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So uh, JB, I know you had a burning question. I did. So we kind of talked about this before the last show, and then it took its own, as it always does with all of us sitting here chatting, but I really want to dig in a little bit on uh, updated prophylaxis recommendations because we've not talked about it. There never seems to be any agreement between even dentists, by the way, because pre-show we were discussing this and we all thought it was different. And then orthopods and heart surgeons and the cardiovascular people also think something totally different. 
So what are the current, as of 2023, recommendations for antibiotic prophylaxis to see your dentist? All right. So, well, should we split that up into ortho versus uh, cardiac? Yeah, but I was going to let the specialist of this particular information split it up. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Sorry. Thanks for your input, Chad. Yeah. You're you're mediocre again. (laughs) It's all good, my friends. And look, I don't blame you one bit for being confused because. Even I, I mean, this is all I do. My, what I, what I can say to almost everybody in this audience is I live in awe of, of all of you because to be the true dental professionals you are these days, you need to know everything I know plus everything you know. And so I do this for a living, as you can see. I'm all about pharmacology, and yet somehow you've got to keep up with all of this and all of everything you know. So kudos to you, my friends for even staying on top of what's uh, uh, what's current when it comes to prophylaxis guidelines. So let's get right to it, okay? And and this is, again, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of feedback on this, so let me know what the feedback is because I'm sure there are going to be some people who dissent as to what I say. But up until 2022, we didn't really have any good, solid clinical or, or you know, empirical information to point that to point to the fact that infective endocarditis prophylaxis was even necessary. We had anecdotal data. We had information from the London College of Physicians, but we really didn't have anything specific to say, you know what, we should be prophylaxing for infective endocarditis uh, prior to dental procedures until 2022, when Martin Thornhill, my personal hero, okay, uh, published a study that encompassed basically 8 million subjects. This was huge. And the results of the study, and I can read them to you because I, I have them almost permanently on my desktop. So it was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And it was a crossover analysis, got about 8 million subjects. And, in, and here's what it said, okay? The study demonstrated a significant temporal association between inv- invasive dental procedures particularly extractions and oral surgical procedures and subsequent infective endocarditis in high-risk individuals. Now, you couldn't say, okay, what's a high-risk individual? But let's just assume we all know what a high-risk individual is, someone who has some type of history of infective endocarditis or at least meets the guidelines for infective endocarditis prophylaxis as put forth by the American Heart Association. The same study also said there was a significant association between antibiotic prophylaxis use and reduced infective endocarditis incidents following these procedures. I'm sold, okay? That's the study. You can look it up, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, uh, 2022 to September issue. Um, that supported the American Heart Association and others' recommendations that patients at high risk for infective endocarditis should receive antibiotic prophylaxis prior to invasive dental procedures. Okay, so far so good, right? Next comes another study from Thornhill in 2023. This one's published in Oral Diseases that involves a case crossover analysis and a cohort study, again, looking for the association between invasive dental procedures, infective endocarditis, and antibiotic prophylaxis efficacy in 1.6 million Medicaid patients who have linked medical, dental, and prescription data, which is great because it allows us to look at the whole picture. And the cohort study, right, 
said, okay, let's identify increased endocarditis incidents within 30 days, fair, of invasive dental procedures in those who are high risk. And again, it showed antibiotic prophylaxis significantly reduced endocarditis incidents following invasive dental procedures. So one more time, we've got two studies now, and and we believe we've got enough to say it's important for us to prophylax prior uh, to invasive dental procedures to, uh, to for people who are high risk for infective endocarditis. And then the whole thing went to hell because the American Heart Association put out its guidelines and confused everybody. I'm not blaming the American Heart Association. It was just confusing because when the prophylaxis guidelines came out, they did away with clindamycin. And let's face it, clindamycin has been a mainstay in dentistry and in the treatment of dental infection, you know, for, for decades. Why? Because of the risk of C. diff-related complications. I totally get it. As a pharmacist, believe me, I've seen enough to know. Here's where it got confusing, though. What did the American Heart Association say you should do? Okay, for patients who can take penicillin, amoxicillin was still the go-to, right? Two grams. If you were unable to take oral medication, the guidelines were cefazolin or ceftriaxone or ampicillin, IV or IM, because you just happen to have those laying around the office at any time, so why not sign up an IM and an IV? No, no problem, right? Okay. The ceftriaxone is interesting because ceftriaxone is a third-generation cephalosporin and cefazolin is a first-generation cephalosporin, which sounds like, I know, hieroglyphics to most of us, but it matters because this is the first time we're looking at what to do for patients who can't take oral medications. Well, it's the same as last time. Nothing's changed. So why change this? Why change the guidelines for people who are allergic to penicillin? Remove clindamycin? Okay, what what have you given us in exchange? Cephalexin. Okay, cephalexin is a first-generation cephalosporin. Depending on who you ask, there can be a, a percent cross-sensitivity of up to 10%. That's for first-generation cephalosporins. Okay, give me another one. Uh, doxycycline, 100 milligrams. I like doxycycline, but it's bacteriostatic, and so I don't think it has, in my opinion the same acceptance in dentistry as a bactericidal antibacterial agent, okay? What's our third option? Azithromycin or clarithromycin. Those are the macrolides. I like azithromycin. I think it's a good drug. But man, if you want to start an argument with a bunch of dentists and oral surgeons, just say these words. Azithromycin has been linked to the potential for ventricular arrhythmia in predisposed patients. And you will see the mushroom cloud and the fallout happen in front of your eyes. Because there are studies that say it does cause QT prolongation and tersades the point, and, and others say, no, it doesn't do it at all, and we've never heard this before. So all in all, we've got cephalexin, which could be a problem for cross-allergenicity. We've got doxycycline, which we may or may not like, depending on whether or not it's bacterial static enough. And then we've got azithromycin. Then I went to the lecture. I did a lecture, a speaker came into my room, took notes, caught me at the speaker gathering that night and said, Viola, you screwed up. And I said, screwed up about what? She said, I went to another lecture and this other 
dentist said, you can use Omniceth in place of any one of the agents I just mentioned for prophylaxis, because a third generation cephalosporin like Omniceth doesn't have the same cross allergenicity with penicillin as cephalexin does as a first generation cephalosporin. And if that's not good, you can use cephaclor, a second generation cephalosporin, in place of that. But you led the audience astray by saying, if you can't use cephalexin, use azithromycin. Now, all of that, my friends, I know, you know I love you guys, must all sound like gibberish, because this is my language and not necessarily everybody else's. But here's the point. You can't make this stuff up. There's guidelines for a reason. If you want to start substituting different antibiotics, go right ahead. But the American Heart Association never said, yeah, use cephaclor. Yeah, use Omnicef. It said specifically, use cephalexin or azithromycin or doxycycline. If you want to go out there and do your own thing, that's fine. You're a doc. You can do whatever you want. These are just guidelines. These are just recommendations. But I'm not going to go willy-nilly out there and start substituting different spectrum antibiotics. Because number one, if I'm a dentist, that's not my field of expertise necessarily. And number two, they have different spectrums. So I don't know if it's going to cover the same bugs. Why would I want to take that chance? For that matter, why prophylax at all? So, Jennifer, a very long-winded answer to your question. Today's episode was brought to you by Prexion. Prexion is a proud educational sponsor and supporter of Dentist in the Know and has been for a while, and we're just honored to have them aboard. As always, all of our educational partners are products that you can trust because we use them, we vetted them, we know them. Prexion is one of those companies. They have a full line of CBCT scanners, But way beyond that, way beyond the best images in the industry, way beyond the best customer service in the industry, they're just a bunch of good folks putting a great product out there. And if you've heard any of our lectures, you'll know that this is just critical equipment that every dental practice should be incorporating. So we're so proud to have Prexion with us. Thank you, Prexion. Well, So really quickly, when you're looking at those high-risk patients, is it now pretty much isolated down to previous history of infective endocarditis or uh, valve replacement? Like where, because, you know, when I graduated from dental school, I mean, when Jeff graduated from dental school, Anyone who had a heart antibiotics didn't exist. Yeah, that wasn't even an issue. Had to be (laughs) prophylactic before they could have a cleaning. Um, And then when Chad came through, they narrowed it down to the mitral valve prolapse. But for you know, for me, it had to have regurgitation. So that's kind of the evolution of how things go. So now it's basically just valve replacement. I just please correct me. My understanding is valve replacement, history of infective endocarditis or some other significant heart issue. Most other things that were originally on the list as high risk have gone away. Is that still true today? Look, even you're 100% right, Jennifer. Even the American Heart Association says it's a small subset of patients. The patient selection guidelines are easy. Here it comes. You had prosthetic materials placed. You have a history of infective endocarditis or you have congenital heart disease. That's it. 
mitral valve prolapse, regurgitate, none of that exists anymore. But I'm going to tell you, do I still have patients who come into clinic who have mitral valve prolapse and insist on prophylaxis? Absolutely. Do I still have cardiologists that insist on it? Absolutely. Do you want to die on that hill? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Is it really worth the battle? Because at the end of the day, if your patient really wants it, they're going to get it. They'll get it from their general practitioner. They'll take it out of their kid's bottle if they have to. They're going to get their amoxicillin. So it, it really doesn't matter. And if you say, well, I'm worried about stewardship. You know, we all have to steward antibiotics and make sure we don't have potential for resistance. I spoke before a whole room of, of cardiologists about this. And their answer to me was what? You think the two grams of amoxicillin you prescribe is going to make a difference when it comes to resistance? Every pediatrician in New Jersey overprescribes amoxicillin for everything. So you've got to say to yourself, do I want to die on this cell? Is it worth it? And, and so, yeah, to answer your question, prosthetic cardiac valves, right, or cardiac valve repair, infective endocarditis, cardiac transplant patients with regurgitation, and again, anybody with a congenital defect, and whether or not prosthetic materials were used to repair that congenital defect. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. And Tom, you said... So at first you just said prosthetic materials, which kind of brings us back to the ortho question, which was separate. Um, patient just this week, as we were talking before the show, um, needed a crown done right away. And um, we had, you know, she mentioned to me that she had had a knee replacement eight months ago. And and again, a lot of this is really geographic, unfortunately. I know the guidelines are not geographic, um, but there is a standard of care that actually follows uh, geographic boundaries. And um, in our area, the standard of care amongst the orthopods has been um, to prophylax for the first six months after any type of prosthetic joint replacement. Um, and that's, you know, any of them in our area are now saying that, which it took them a long time to give it up after six months in our area. But, you know, even seeing the guidelines, which now, uh, as you were saying earlier, is really that this doesn't need, uh, you know, by the literature, really, there's no evidence to support uh, offering prophylaxis for joint replacement of any type at all. Uh, but yet I was kind of placed in a in a weird situation. This patient was eight months out. Um, six months, it would have been a slam dunk. I'm like, everyone in this area is going to tell me to do it. I'm willing to take the risk. I'll go ahead and give her the antibiotics, even though I know that that's not 
truly indicated at this point. I know every orthopedist is going to recommend that, and I'm not going to have this argument or or cause strife at that point. Um, and and you know, I'll have my epi if she has a reaction. I'll have my epi ready or whatever, but I'm going to give it to her. But now we were at eight months, and she's like, "Well, I think I still want it." And I'm like, again, what what do you do at this point? Because you know the evidence says no. Do you say, do you refuse and then have the patient walk out of the room? Because that's what she was going to do. Um, so uh, obviously, you know what I did. But uh, I'm just curious what, what your take on all this is, Tom. Yeah, I will tell you flat out because I, I deal with this every day. If your patient believes beyond a shadow of a doubt, that by taking that amoxicillin, there's going to be a chance that their joint will not reject and they'll not have to go through a second joint replacement procedure. Come heck or high water, they're going to get that amoxicillin. You, you can stand on your head and scream and yell and, 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 and say all about the guidelines, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, your patient believes that this is going to save their joint. They're going to, not only are they going to request it, they're going to demand it. And again, do you want to die on that hill? It may not be worth it. Go back to the 2015 ADA guidelines. What do they say? Not recommended. This is from the ADA. Go to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons website. What does it say? Don't do it. Okay. Everyone's in agreement. It doesn't work. Thornhill, same guy, publishes a study in 2022 that says what? There's no evidence that it works. Period. And that was, I think, over 3,000 patients. Bottom line is, for everybody out there who's listening right now, there are guidelines in place. If you want to prophylax, follow the guidelines, save yourself the grief of potential lawsuits and pretend, potential issues with orthopods and cardiologists in your area, and prophylax. Because at the end of the day, if your patient really wants it, they're going to get it. However, if you really want to stick to your guns and if you really want to stick to the guidelines, then do that and say it's not required and, and make sure your patient is aware that it is not required and even if you have to show the documentation at least once, print out one of the studies, keep it in your office, say, here, read this. Here's the headline. It says it's clearly not indicated. But to be honest with you, you don't have time to do that in an office when you're really busy. You don't want to get into a confrontational situation with your patient because you lose a patient, you lose them forever, and every other person they're ever going to speak to. And there are there are clinicians out there, one hygienist I know of in particular, who's Husband had a joint replacement infection and had to have his joint replaced. And she's out there saying she agrees with prophylaxing forever. All I can say is I'm, I'm not opposed to that. If you want to prophylax, do it. If you don't want to prophylax, but you think your patient's going to walk, then do it anyway. Because at the end of the day, if you want to be a steward and say, I don't want to have to contribute to the potential for antibiotic resistance, Sorry, the amount you're prescribing compared to what other doctors prescribes is really like a drop in the ocean. Hey, Dinks podcast listeners, you love the sound, but you miss seeing our lovely faces. Be sure and join us on our weekly Facebook Live or on our YouTube channel at Dennis in the Know. We'd love to have you subscribe and be with us at all times everywhere. So from personal experience, I can tell you that there's a huge elephant in the room in regards to all of this. And that's something that that Jeff and Jennifer and I can probably relate to. But this has happened to me twice in my practice. The dentist is the scapegoat. 
The dentist is always the scapegoat. I had a patient with a brain abscess. The first question they were asked is, have you had cleaning recently? I had a patient that lost a knee. First question they were asked is, have you had a dental cleaning recently after a joint replacement? And, and I think it's a scapegoat. And we all know that from vigorous toothbrushing, you can create a bacteremia. But we're always the scapegoat. So I would err on the side of caution rather than, than, than argue with a patient. And, you know, if they want it, they're going to get it. But with that being said, for the first time in my career this past week, I had a call from a doctor that I'd never heard of before, and he was an orthopedic surgeon. Never heard of this guy, didn't even know that this patient had had joint replacement. The patient was in his office. The guy called me at the office and said, hey, I just want to let you know, so-and-so just had his knee replaced, um, and this is what our protocol is. Are you okay with it? And the patient, he said, we'd like him to pre-medicate for two years. After that, he's fine. And he says, I'm going to go ahead and write the script today. Are you okay with, with XYZ? And I was like, absolutely. And I just want to tell you that I thank you for taking that burden off of me because nine times out of 10, I have to defer it to you. 10 times out of 10, you don't answer the phone. And you're the first one that's ever called me and actually given me a clinical decision. And I certainly appreciate your recommendation and let's go with it. But, you know, it's just twice in my career, I've, I've been the scapegoat and neither time was the timing of their dental cleaning time for, you know, that, that, that I could have been the culprit, but I was the culprit and the patient just has to hear that, that little bit, did you get a cleaning? And then all of a sudden, like I, I was on the phone, one of the patients called me and said, I need you to talk to your medical mal or your dental malpractice, uh, uh, insurance company and find out if they can help me pay my medical bills. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And so, you know, it, it, that I will never forget that day because that was probably the, the scariest day of my career. When, it, when a patient called me and said, call your mal malpractice insurance carrier. I need help with my medical bills. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, you know, we had a brain abscess. Mind you, they were eating like unwashed fruits in Mexico for two weeks. And then they come back, she's got a brain abscess and they want to know when her last cleaning, which was, was, which was eight months ago. And they want to get me to get a hold of my medical malpractice insurance carrier. So we're the scapegoat no question. And I will tell you this, my friends, and this comes from me to all of the people out there who really want just a definitive answer here. Here it is. These are guidelines. They're recommendations. They won't ever protect you because at the end of the day, you're the doc, you're the clinician, you make the decision. So. They're not regulations. They're not laws. They're not something that you must agree with or disagree with. They're recommendations and guidelines. So my advice is, for what it's worth, stick to what you know. If you think that this patient requires, demands, or will just drive you bananas until you give them prophylaxis, give it to them. If you think this patient you know, won't give you such grief, and they really, you know, don't need it because it's not in clinically indicated, and you feel they're going to go along with you, then don't. But when in doubt, do. Because at the end of the day, what are you really accomplishing? You're fighting a battle with your patient, with the orthopedic doctors and the cardiologists in your area. To what end? They'll just go to another clinician, or they'll just get the antibiotic from somebody else anyway. So, when guidelines like this are put forward, 
it's really not so much whether or not to prophylax. My concern would be, which agent did you use to prophylax with? And in that case, I think you stand to have more risk. And so that's when you need to follow the guidelines. So decide whether or not you're going to do it based on the patient, based on the situation, based on whether or not they have a, medic- they have a medical need for prophylaxis. And then if you're going to stick to the guidelines, make sure you stick to the guidelines and don't make any substitutions. And and I don't I mean, yeah I don't think it's I'm sorry Chad but I, I, it it just made me think of something I mean there there's no because I I appreciate what what the orthopedic surgeon did with you and 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 God knows when you know it's their knee it's like it's their work it's their profession so if they're telling the patient I want you to protect my work by doing X who the hell am I to say Oh no, orthopedist, you're wrong. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you shouldn't do this. It it it's really none of my business. That's a medical decision made by the person who performed the procedure. So especially if they're willing to write the script, what sweat is that off my back? In fact, it it's a get out of jail free card. You know, is more of how I see that. So you know, I, I love what you said, Tom, that that really it's um, it, you know, it, it's less about whether or not you're going to prophylax and, and more about if you are, then that's the time to stick to the guidelines. I appreciate that advice very much. I, I totally agree. Um, I have a question for for all of you. Um, and this is very popular in this geographic area. Um has anybody been asked for prophylaxis for breast implants? There's a surgeon in our area, maybe a couple that recommend it. But My surgeon have... told me I didn't need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that, Jeff. I know that, Jeff. Uh, but, you know, I, I have patients that demand it for breast implants. And I, I can tell you that we've had a good... Uh, dozen over the past 20 years. Um, and I've, I don't know if it's a group of surgeons, if it's one surgeon, but we're talking not just for six months, we're talking for a lifetime. Yep. And, and I, I guess is that, have you heard of that before, oh, yeah. Tom? Breast implants, pectoral implants, um, abdominal implants, penile implants. Yes. Heard of basically every implant you could think of that I've heard of, I've heard someone say, I want to take an antibiotic because I don't want any problems with my implant. Now, of course, when, when I got these right here, <laughs> they, they told me that I didn't have to worry about it. So I just kind of was like, OK, well, my yeah. is natural, so I don't have to worry about it either. I'm good. So <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I've heard all of this. But the thing is, there's no guidelines. There's, there's nothing out there. I mean, go find a guideline to 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 prophylax against the rejection of a uh, abdominal implant. It just doesn't exist. So a lot of docs use amoxicillin because it's something that they remember from the days of infective endocarditis and joint replacement infection. So be it. Uh, my, my advice to you is, again, and I like what you said, Jeff, let's stick with the program here, okay? It's not a battle. The doc wants it, and, and, and you're in agreement with the doc because, you know, you're a doc as well. If you're in agreement, fine. The only time I would say... I would not prophylax if I 
truly felt as a clinician that it was in uh, it was not in the best interest of the patient. And the only time this has ever happened that I can recall in my career is when uh, a doctor screamed at me over the phone and insisted, because as a pharmacist, you know, you, you get this kind of abuse every so often. I write it, you fill it. I don't want any questions. Uh, but the patient had um, colitis and the doctor prescribed clindamycin. And he didn't want to hear that I said, uh, I'm not going to prescribe clind- or dispense clindamycin to a patient who I know has ulcerative colitis because I know the, the problems with C. diff. That's me as the professional making a decision on, on behalf of my patient because I know it's in their best interest. If that comes up, I don't think you could ever say you didn't do the right thing. But in every other situation, if the cardiologist insists on it, if the orthopedic doctor insists on it, and the patient wants it, then just do it and make everybody's life a lot easier because what are you standing for if you don't? But do follow the guidelines and don't make substitutions, as I said before, okay? Now, can I just mention one more thing? What do you do? Sure. What if you do? What do you do if the patient's allergic to penicillin? Let's just let's hammer this out. Now, first of all, you should know this is interesting trivia for you that this has come up. It's Zithromax now. Well, it's Zithromycin, but you know what's interesting is that there was a study published that said that patients who claim they have penicillin allergy are more likely to have dental implant failure because they use a different antibiotic other than amoxicillin. The study was published, I think, a couple of years ago. The point is, I would, if, in my case, if I had to look at the guidelines, am I going to use cephalexin as a first-generation cephalosporin with the potential for allergenicity? I'm going to ask the patient point blank, have you ever taken cephalexin? But does that help me? No, because maybe their memory's faulty. Not going to try that, okay? Am I going to use doxycycline? I might use doxycycline, but... At the end of the day, I'm probably going to use azithromycin, and I want to know that this patient isn't taking any other drug that could predispose them to any type of atrial or ventricular fibrillation or arrhythmia. And that is a hard yes for someone who's a dentist, who works in an office, who doesn't have that kind of information just laying about. That's handy for them. So what do you do? You may end up going with doxycycline just because you don't know about the patient's predisposition to QT prolongation and perhaps the, the risk of arrhythmia. Um, one of our, uh, Alan Stern, who's watching, wanted to dig a little bit deeper into what do we, what's actually considered invasive at this point? Because I have joked totally off the cuff about the fact that when patients come in for a general prophylaxis, it's no worse than the day they decided to floss two days prior to coming in for their recare visit. Like we don't stimulate that much more bleeding or that much more of a bacterial insult than, you know, them just doing their own regular routine or lack of routine care. So what now falls in the box of invasive dentistry that would then require prophylaxis? Do you want the official definition or do you? We'll do official first. <laughs> so it's on the record. So, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read it to you, okay? Because it says uh, prophylaxis is recommended for all dental procedures that involve manipulation of the gingival tissue or the periapical region of the teeth or perforation of the oral mucosa. That is the official definition of what's invasive. That's 
That's like 99% yeah. of I mean, that's basically yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other thing? Hmm. Hey, Tom, would you be willing to publish that definite or just you quote it, just quote that definition in the comments after the show? Can. Yeah, it comes right from, uh, uh, it's right from the, uh, it's a scientific statement for the American Heart Association. It's published in circulation in 2021. It's like the magazine circulation. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Um, what was so basically the patients perform an invasive procedure every time they floss or you know or or nick themselves with the potato chip or or pretzel or something hey i've heard exactly and and i think the question before that is worthy of discussion as well about can we truly define what high risk is i'm still waiting for an answer on that one yep me too yeah yeah I, I would agree. I would agree. I, I don't disagree with that. You know, um, let's let's talk uh, real quick, switching gears. You know, for years, amoxicillin has been the drug of choice for a oral infection. Um, you know, and then it was Clinda if they were allergic to amoxicillin. Um, we have this huge aversion to Clinda now that we've briefly discussed um in in my practice the next choice would be keflex uh but you know of course if they're allergic to amoxicillin you got the percentage of cross reactivity what hey chad can i stop uh, let me just stop you there and ask tom this one quick no i want to ask him this one question because this is i will forget if if we don't do this right now so typically when keflex or or cephalexin is going to be my choice you know I will ask the patient, have you taken Keflex? You know, if I'm worried about the cross-reactivity, I'll say, have you taken Keflex in the past safely? I know that the fact that they've done it doesn't mean that they cannot, you know, it, it, it doesn't preclude them from having a future anaphylactic reaction. I understand that. But that's typically what I've used as my guideline to decide Okay, maybe I'm going to lean that way, especially when the next step was clindamycin, and you know maybe there was some concern about ulcerative colitis or or uh, GI issues. I mean, it, it, is that the right thing to do? What what I was doing, or or what would you suggest? So here's my answer. Ready? The greatest blessing ever bestowed upon dentistry was that you can take the patient's medical history directly from the patient themselves. And the greatest curse ever inflicted upon dentistry was you could take the patient's medical history directly from the patient themselves. I will not rely on a patient's memory. They may not even remember when they took the Keflex. They may not even remember what the name of the drug was. They might be confusing it with something entirely different. Unless I've got some bona fide, you know, I call the pharmacy and they say, oh, yeah, they've taken Keflex numerous times. Unless I go down that road, I'm not going to rely on their memory at all. I'm going to go with what I know. So if I know you're allergic to penicillin, I'm not even going to chance Keflex. If I'm not sure if you're allergic to penicillin, I'm still not going to chance Keflex. So I'm not ever going to use a cephalosporin if there's any doubt the patient's allergic to penicillin. I will go to my next best option. Only because, again, Jeff, I, I love the fact that you do it, but I just don't trust patients. No, no, I'm curious. This is a great conversation. I just don't trust their memory enough because they just don't remember enough sometimes. You've got some astute patients. Don't get me wrong. Some people 
I'll show up and know everything. But I don't want to take that chance. So I'm going to tell them, you know what? I'm not going to worry about whether or not you're allergic to cephalex or not. I'm just going to go with my next choice. The next choice, as I said, is problematic. So uh, that's my answer to that question. Okay. Chad, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but that, that was just no, a that, point. No, that, it, it actually was a great, great question because it led to my ultimate answer. I mean, you know, so what would you use? So if you can't use amoxicillin, well, I just want to. Yeah. I mean, well, if, if, if you can't use amoxicillin, you, you, I still would go to Clinda, but you know, third choice would be Keflex, which we just all agreed that if there's an allergy to amoxicillin, we're not going with Keflex. Clinda, I'm a little bit leery about, you know, especially with a daughter with UC. Um, I'm, I, I, I am fearful of, of creating an issue with somebody. But, um, but I, I don't know what would be next. What, what are you, you thinking? I mean, I don't think z works for oral infections. I've just never had good success. I got those are your two choices left. You got azithromycin. You do have clarithromycin, biaxin. Yeah. Uh, you know, t- traditionally biaxin has been reserved for the treatment of Lyme's disease. I have seen it used, you know, uh, for other types of infections. So you've got either azithromycin or clarithromycin or doxycycline. So I'm asking you guys, are you, are you fans of doxycycline? What do you think? No, I don't think, no, not for, for most dental infections. It's, it's chronic spectrum is just not there. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So, so my, so I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying don't use clindamycin. I'm not saying do use clindamycin. What I'm saying is if you've used clindamycin in this patient before then, and you feel comfortable using it, the guidelines didn't say for the rest of all time, for the rest of all dentistry, never use clindamycin again. It just said for infective endocarditis prophylaxis, we don't recommend the use of clindamycin anymore. So if I had a bone infection, yeah. if I had a deep-seated soft tissue infection, you bet I'm going to use clindamycin. Or I'm going to maybe use, if it's gram-negative anaerobic, I'm going to use metronidazole. But I'm going to, I'm going to use agents that I know work. Here's, if, so what, what I would do in that situation is if I felt comfortable using clindamycin, I would follow up with that patient. I would follow up at, at three days. I'd follow up at seven days. And if you prescribed any longer than that, if you prescribed 10 days, if you you know you thought there was more infection necessary, uh, more antibiotic uh, prophylaxis or antibiotic therapy necessary. But if you get to 10 days, that's when you start to run risk, okay? So follow up. And if they've got persistent diarrhea or anything like it, I would I would get them to the ER as quickly as possible. I wouldn't, know. you know, and I love what uh, I, I can't see who wrote it. I, I but I love how somebody said I I recommend that that folks take probiotics. I'm sorry, it was Alan Stern. It just popped up, and and if I'm going to prescribe clindamycin, I'm definitely recommending a probiotic. Mm-hmm. And, and and I I agree with with that to a point. I, I think you know probiotic unfortunately has become a word that has has really been. Um, you know, spread out to encompass a lot of different products. You are looking for things that that we know are are active and and not something like acidophilus tablets that have sat on somebody's shelf for twenty years. You know, we're looking for active cultures. We're looking for the things that are refrigerated because we know those things work. But but to be to your other point before, and it was a good one. And I've read this, and I've had many people tell me this: if you wipe your hiney vigorously enough. You can get bacteremia. So, absolutely. At the end of the day, you know, it's about you being a doc and you using the agent that you feel comfortable with. 
And I, I don't think clindamycin is a terrible drug. I just think it needs follow-up and it, it needs to be taken seriously. If that patient has persistent diarrhea or any, any symptoms that are even like pseudomembranous colitis, they need to be referred right away. And I think we could probably go into a whole discussion on probiotics, but I actually I have specific brands topic. that I recommend. Yeah, yeah. I think we got another show. You got a whole yeah. oral I, probiotic world starting to open up there. Yeah. And then, yeah. I, I have a specific place to get them that I recommend to patients. And I have specific brands that I recommend. So Which I'm, I'm now genuinely I, I would, curious because my guess is it falls in the whole multivitamin world where it's very unregulated. So labeling it probiotic could mean i'm guessing there's just not a lot of control over that particular and, and you you read the you you read the amount of you know the the amount of bacteria and um you're like holy crap you know and, and you know the live cultures and whatnot and and it, it's just like i mean millions billions you know you're like oh my Zillions. gosh but yeah there's there's a couple of specific uh, brands that I recommend, and and I send people to specific places. So, I, I I'm not a I'm not a I'm not probably not the smartest person on it, but I've learned a lot from my wife and my daughter. So, well, we um, the, the, I absolutely want to have this conversation on another show, and um, we have like always every time that we speak to you, Tom, the time absolutely flies by. And uh, we've used all of our time tonight, but uh, man, thank you for always being available for us. Thank you for what you do for our profession. Thank you for, um, you know, uh, uh, really talking to all of us at, at a level that we can appreciate as, as dentists, uh, because as much as we think we know about pharmacology, there's no way we can know enough to to really do that topic justice. So um, we we appreciate you so much, and and you are always welcome on this show. And um, actually, you're welcome in my practice anytime. So I can just ask you throughout the day what I need. <laughs> that sounds like such a I profitable idea do, for him. Uh, I think we need to work something out with Tom to where maybe we could do a CE event to where people could maybe get some pharmacology credits for the year and do that as an ongoing thing, like maybe a webinar sponsored by Dinks. I don't know. And then heaven forbid we have to start having the conversation about the eight hours of DEA requirement now. Yeah. 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 Thank God I did mine before June 27th. Well, you guys count me in for anything you want, because I always love being on this show. You guys are always a breath of fresh air. You always represent what I feel is the cutting edge of dentistry. I'm just very honored to be a part of it. So have me back anytime. I'd love to be here. You know that. Love to work with you. Thanks, Tom. That hour just blew by. Really, really Enjoy appreciate you. you. All right. Close us yeah. out, Chad. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. All right. another podcast for dentists in the know on behalf of dr jennifer bell dr chad duplantis and myself remember that we've got a great profession so let's make it a great day dinks